This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Happy Independence Day, everyone. This is the Evidence for Faith radio show, where we give Christian evidences and explain the Christian worldview. We hope everyone is enjoying the beautiful weather. Mike and I were out experiencing the boardwalk in Ocean City yesterday, and it was a lot of great fun. Indeed. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Um, today, I just wanted to remind our viewing, our listening audience, Keith, that uh, today's show is sponsored in part by Grace Community Church. You can visit uh, them at their web- website, uh, a placeforgrace.org. That's a place, the number four, grace.org. You can also visit us on our website, evidence4, that's the number four, evidenceforfaith.com. You can also find us on Facebook and iTunes. And you can also get downloads of the various shows that we've done, and I believe we're up to just about 90, right, Keith? Approaching 90 anyway. Yeah, we're somewhere between 80 and 90. Yep. So any any show that uh, might um, uh, interest you, you can just scroll down through the uh, listings that we have, and um, if you're having a hard time getting into a Bible study, you can actually use these uh, downloads as uh, a study as well. There you go. There you go. I like that. Well, we always start the show off with some news items. We've got several news items. We also have a question that we got by email. And just so people know, if they'd like to email us during the show, because some people would rather do that than call in, you can go to evidenceforfaith.com and click on the contact button, and that will open up a window that people can you can email and ask questions during the show if you want to disagree with us, agree with us, or ask questions. Well, we got a question, and uh, it says, What are the limits to a belief in God? Can a believer, in quotes, also engage in war, wife-beating, child pornography, corrupt politics, money lending, unscrupulous business practices, etc.? Okay. Wow. That's, Another one of these strangely worded questions. It's it's a potpourri at best, and you know I'm I'm reminded of the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, giving Christ these very very difficult uh, questions to answer in almost a uh, a trapping mode. Yeah, it seems um, like it's a trap, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, you know <laughs> what are you we going to say do? about this? Well, read the first uh, the first uh, objectionable thing. Uh, let's war? see. Was Can it? believers be engage in war? Okay. Uh, now, the answer to that is actually given to us in Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. There is a time for war, and uh-huh. there's a time for peace. In fact, it was the song in 1964 that was popularized by the birds during the British invasion. They used that song with the, the lyrics verbatim right out of the Bible. There is a time for peace. There's a time for war. So there are times in our country's history that war had to be waged against evil forces, and I and I think of uh, World War II right off the bat uh, and the evil that was brought forth by the the Axis powers and Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, and um, Hirohito, the Japanese emperor. Right. 
Yeah, it sounds like the questioner is, you know, I guess saying that if you do these things, then how do you believe in God? Well, and in a sense, I would agree with the person. I mean, you know, if you claim to believe in God and then you do evil things, you know, then essentially what does it mean to you that you believe in God? You know, it becomes a non-entity in your life. So uh, I see, I think, where the person's going, but uh, it also seems to be some kind of, um, you know, uh, a proof against God, you know, that... You know, people believe in God, but it doesn't seem to make any difference in their lives. They're just as evil as they were before, um, I, I think, is maybe what the questioner is trying to get at. I, I see the question as almost a, a willful wanting to entrap the individual trying to answer the question. You know, if you look at Christ's life, uh, he, didn't want, he didn't want to wage war, but you know what? He, he overturned the, uh, the tables of the, the crooks that were in the temple. Uh, right. So he sort of waged a mini-war and, and lashed out against them. But at the same time, he said that uh, if you were uh, struck, turn your other cheek also. Right. You know, so right. he was advocating peace, yes. But there are times when there is righteous indignation, righteous anger, and, um, you know, you have to stand up for what is correct in God's eyes. Well, the great thing to remember on this Independence Day weekend is that Christianity has provided the greatest antidote against all these things, against war, uh, uh, child beating, um, wife beating, and all the rest of the list that's in here. There has been no greater power for good than Christianity, and that's what this show is all about. We want you to take a very intellectual approach to Christianity, to looking at the evidences that support it, and there are evidences. I know there's the shocked uh, atheist thinking out there, what are you talking about? What evidence? But there is, and that's what this show is about. And this show is also about thinking about the benefits that come to society and to people personally by adopting Christian virtues. And hey. one of them that we're celebrating today, independence, freedom, straight out of the book of Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. That is uh, a virtue in Christianity. Freedom is incredibly important in Christianity and it's helped to lead to the freedom of millions and billions of people around the world. I've got a quote that I want to mention. We've mentioned this before, but I think if there's a thematic quote for our show, it's this one. And it's by Jay Wood and it's about uh, how important it is to really think well. He says, your intellectual life is important for the simple reason that your very character, the kind of person you are and are becoming, is at stake. Careful oversight of our intellectual lives is imperative if we are to think well, and thinking well is an indispensable ingredient to living well. Hmm. And living well, well, who wrote the book on living well, Keith? Who wrote the book on living well? Who was the greatest moral teacher of all time? I would say Jesus Christ. By golly, I think we're going to talk about today, that today, aren't we? Absolutely. Yes, we're going to get into, was Jesus the smartest man who ever lived? And we're taking a tack that's been popular with a few other um, proponents, one by the name of Dallas Willard. We'll be using some uh, notes from him and from some other guys Doug Gruthius, uh, Peter Kreeft, if you know him, a philosopher, has also written on this topic, and uh, another philosopher that I forget his name right now, 
But um, that's what we're going to be approaching. If you'd like to call in, uh, you can reach us at 609-398-1020 and help us answer the question, was Jesus the smartest man who ever lived? Well, you know, it's interesting, Keith. If you look at the uh, the Time Magazine article that chronicled the um, the century's smartest men, the 100 most influentially smartest men during the uh, uh, last century, mm-hmm. Jesus' name was not on that list. Because it was, oh, well, yeah, because he didn't live during the last century. Okay. So. All right. Well, so, you know, I, the the parallel there is that the Bible still, is the Bible is the best-selling book year after year after year, but it doesn't show up on that list either. Absolutely. Well, we've got a couple a couple more news items to go over before we get into the main topic. You know, I I found this um uh article Keith uh, on teenagers in pregnancy uh and it was a uh a study, a survey really that was conducted by the Centers for Disease Control down in Atlanta, the CDC. And what they did, they polled teens about sexual practices. And let's remind people that you are a physician. Okay. Um, So you're perfectly qualified to talk about this study. Okay. Teenagers and pregnancy was the survey. And what they found that they, um, uh, when they talked to these teens between the ages of 15 and 19, they wanted to find out what their thoughts were on their sexual practices. And what they found was actually shocking to me, uh, in a good way, in that uh, 42% of teens had had sex at least one time before the age of 19. Now, you mean only 42? Uh, yeah, only 42. Said, I see. I, I thought it was a good thing. I thought it was higher than that. Yeah. You see, but if, this. If somebody had asked me, I would have thought it was higher too. Now, the, they didn't go into demographics. I know that this number is skewed in a uh, more permissive way, sexual practice wise, in the inner cities. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's less so in the heartland of the country. Right. Okay, but uh, 42% of these teens between the ages of 15 and 19 uh, said that they had had sex at least one time. Now, the thing that was um, problematic is that they found that uh, there were more and more teens uh, having kids out of wedlock Mm. during the same time frame compared to what it was 10 years ago. And the other thing that had changed dramatically was that uh, teens were more uh, liberal in their attitudes towards... Uh, thinking that it was okay to be an unwed mother, uh, okay, yeah. that uh, that increased up to almost two thirds of all teens who were uh, interviewed said that it, that it was okay to be a, a mother even though you were unwed, right? And said that they would embrace that news in a very very positive way if in fact they found out that they were pregnant with their partner and yet uh, were living um, uh, in an unmarried state. Now one of the one of the problems that's perplexing um, the advocates of of uh not being um pregnant when you're unwed mm-hmm. is that they've been trying to teach these people to 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 hold off uh and it's not working so that more and more kids are being liberal in their attitudes towards sex uh not only premarital sex but also having children before marriage so what do we do what's what's the perplexing problem here yeah i guess we have to start talking to them in a more direct fashion uh, one of the things they said is that we were trying to teach these kids as if they were adults, and kids that are between the ages of 15 and 19 are not adults. The prefrontal cortex, which is what mm. controls behaviors, mm-hmm. is not developed until you're about 21 or 22 years old. So kids so we're are, teaching them to make good choices, but they don't have the mental capacity to actually make good choices. Because things get out of hand and they just happen. 
Right. Okay. And that's, that's what happens on a Friday night mm-hmm. when it's hot and steamy and, and things get out of control. The kids are just not saying no and standing up. Right. Now, of the kids who are abstaining, and here's the encouraging note, it was because of faith and morality. Faith and morality were the anchors that were keeping a certain percentage of these kids from engaging in premarital sex. Mm-hmm. Now, I can tell you, Keith, that when I have a teenage kid come into the practice as a new patient, I always sit down with them um, with with the mom, actually. Usually the mother's in the office, too, whether it's a male or a female. And I talk about safe sexual practices. And I, and I explain to them there really is no such thing as safe sex, that rubbers don't work. And the reason I say that is because we know that studies show that between 82 to 87 percent of the time, rubbers don't work. Okay, and you can only get pregnant. You mean they do work 82 to 87, but the rest of the time they don't. Okay, I'm sorry. Let, let yeah. me let me say this again. Rubbers prevent pregnancy 82 to 87 percent of the time, but a female can only get pregnant two nights out of the the month when she's ovulating. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain degree of malfunction, ripping, tearing, slippage, etc., whereby the female still gets pregnant. Now, you can catch a venereal disease the rest of those nights when right. there's slippage and breakage any and so night. forth, any night. So what I advocate, and I say this uh, in front of the parent to the kid, is that, yes, there is no such thing as safe sex. Rubbers don't work. I advocate saved sex, with the direct implication being abstinence. Mm-hmm. Okay, and most of the parents... Save it for marriage. You got it. Most of the parents are in... 100% agreement uh, with that. And then if there is a child, then the child would not have the disadvantage of having to be raised by a single parent. Uh, correct. Now, right. I can tell you that recently in my practice, I had a young lady come in with her boyfriend who turned, tur- she was 19 years old, and they just found out that they were uh, pregnant together. Mm-hmm. They were excited. They were ecstatic. Um, and I, I said to them, um, uh, congratulations for not terminating the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Great. So that's right out yeah, of Yeah, see, that's kind of that catch-22 thing. If we're going to tell people not to have abortions, then unfortunately that means that there will be more likelihood of, of um, delivering, and then you just have to take what you can get, single parent. Of course, I think the best way is, is adoption and let a two-parent, two, uh, home have the child since they're since such desperate need for uh for children these days Mm. well if you are just joining us you're listening to evidence for faith i'm keith kendricks hi i'm dr mike larrakis and our call-in number is 609-398-1020 and you can email us during the show too by going to evidenceforfaith.com and clicking on the contacts button a couple of items i kind of congealed several news items in uh, about the economy into uh, some notes here because I thought it was important that we go over some of this because there is been a lot of bad economic news out there and some of the economists that I follow are starting to predict a looks like we may be going into a double dip recession so uh, some of the things that are out there is that uh, for one thing, there's a economist by the name of Christina Romer. Now, she is the head of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, and she's published research that tax increases can have as much as a three-times multiplier on the effect of the gross domestic product. So 
and we are now facing coming up the Congress, it looks like, is going to let the uh, tax cuts expire, and those are more than 1% of the gross domestic product. They are a huge amount of taxes, which means that up to 3% or more decline in gross domestic product. Now, we're only so we're hovering somewhere right now around 2.5% growth, uh, and it looks like that they think that by the time these tax cut these tax increases go into effect the gross domestic product will be about uh, growing at about only 2%. So that means if you slam another negative 3% on that now you're back into a recession at minus 1% uh, growth. So that doesn't look good. Uh, and this is, you know, there's this argument Keynesianism versus um, Milton Friedman you know, do you, can you stimulate the economy with money? And, you know, we're just running out of stimulus money. It's all being borrowed from our grandchildren so that we can have good times now and not have to face these repeat recessions. So uh, let's see, a couple notes here. Home prices are still overpriced, looks like. Some analysis of home prices nationwide. The job market, and that's why the uh, market went went down. Uh, stock market went down last week because of the bad economic job uh, numbers. 116,000 private sector jobs in June and July combined. But what we need is 125,000 jobs per month just to keep up with population growth. So we're way in a negative. So how many jobs we need for just keeping up with population trying to keep up so so jobs are going away economy is not looking so good uh, here's another statistic that i found someplace else number of people planning a vacation down 35 percent over the past three years wow. car purchases appliance purchases all of that going down so do we need more regulation well in a sense, we do. We do need regulation because one of the problems is that there's been ethical lapses. You know, people are not self-governing. People are not using self-control. This is a government where for the people, by the people, where we need self-government. That means you govern yourself. You don't steal from your neighbor. You don't rob from people. And there's been terrible ethical lapses on the part of lenders, on the part of bond raiders on the part of speculators even home buyers in the government outside the government in private sector uh, you know there's been ethical lapses so what are we getting from congress though we're getting a 1200 page uh, regulation 1200 pages i'm sorry uh, it is it's long been one of the foundations of America that you keep laws simple and unobtrusive. 1,200 pages. It's, it's actually immoral to pass a law of 1,200 pages because nobody can know it. Nobody can understand this law. Even the people passing it don't understand the full ramifications. So not a good thing. Uh, let's see. It does address... Uh, no, actually, one of the things it does not address is the bond rating agencies okay well they were part of the problem why aren't they being addressed so um you know some big problems 
but you know we've got to we got to keep keep working on Congress, keep uh, putting in people with Christian views so that they can apply biblical principles like freedom, like self-government, and put them in Congress so that we can uh, get this economy back up and running again. And Christianity's been the prominent source of the economic boom that we've seen uh, in the world since the Middle Ages because of the uh, capitalism and the economy brought about by a Protestant work ethic. Anybody ever heard of that? Hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's on the decline now. Uh, and I agree with you, Keith. We have to uh, get people in office who are going to work for us instead of, um, you know, the electorate working for uh, the elected officials. The other thing that has to be controlled is the rate of growth of not only state and uh, county governments, but also the federal government. Uh, and unfortunately, right. I don't see anything to that effect happening. You know, you have to have at least three public se- sector jobs to support one. I'm sorry, you have to have three private sector jobs to support one public sector individual mm-hmm. from a tax point of view, right, just right. To, to support that. Right. And uh, unfortunately, I think we're, we're way over on that, uh, that ratio. And they're making more money than the private sector people doing the same job. Correct. Yeah. So, well, if you are just tuning in, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And this is the show where we talk about Christian evidences and the Christian worldview and how it impacts things like economics and government. Today we're going to look at a more uh, spiritual topic. We're going to look at um, the relationship between Christianity and intellect by looking at the question, was Jesus the smartest man who ever lived? Just to start us off, I've got a, a quote that came across on thinkchristianly.org. It's a great blog. This is from J.I. Packer. Hopefully many people know who J.I. Packer is, a great New Testament scholar. He says, We are cruel to ourselves when we try to live in this world without knowing the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place For those who do not know about God, disregarding the study of God, and you disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. That's from J.I. Packer. So think about God. We're going to give you a topic to think about, and that is, was Jesus the smartest man who ever lived? Now, Keith, I know that there has to be an atheist out there who's going to be very upset about this topic, and we want him specifically to call us at 398-1020. Now, if you are a Christian and you have something that you want to add to this conversation, also feel free to call us. Well, many people remember that in 1999, George Bush was asked a question by the news, who is your favorite philosopher? And he answered, Jesus Christ, because he changed my life. And critics really slammed him for that. They heckled him. Yeah, because, oh, Jesus Christ is a philosopher now? Well, actually, Jesus Christ has been considered a philosopher for a long time. 
There's I've got a one of the uh, books that we're getting notes from today is Doug Gruthius's On Jesus, which is from the Wadsworth Philosophers, uh, Philosophers series. Boy, I'm having trouble with my words today. So this is a series of books, about 100 pages each, that introduces people to different philosophers down through the ages. And lo and behold, here's one on Jesus. So we're going to look a little more in-depth into that, but definitely not wrong to think of Jesus as a philosopher. The main thing is, why don't we think about him as being super smart? You know, we think about him as somebody who forgives, who uh, promotes uh, freedom from sin, who died for us, but we don't tend to think of him as, you know, his intelligence. We don't think of him as being super smart, that kind of thing. You know, it's critical here too, Keith, if we're going to understand life and go through life and look for direction and be discipled by Jesus, Mm -hmm. we have to look at him as a smart teacher. Now, I can't imagine going through medical school and looking at one of my, my professors and saying, I'm smarter than this guy. I have no respect for the man. Right. I mean, you be, wouldn't learn anything oh, from him. It, it would be terrible, you know. Right. So, uh, of course, he has to be the one that we look to for guidance, for, for insights, for wisdom. Right. Uh, he's not just the guy that's going to come to our rescue when we're hurting or we're in trouble. He has to be the guy that shows us the way and leads us. That's right. And walks with us and talks with us each and every day. And that gives you personal confidence. Exactly. You know, that you know that you can that you know that you're the one you're following is uh, is smart. It knows what he's talking about. So and this lack of thinking about him as the smartest man who ever lived, uh, really, you know, it's something that both Christians and non Christians uh, suffer from. You know. What, think about it. You know, ask any, even a Christian. Do you think Jesus was smarter than Einstein? You know, what would they say? Well, you know, before I actually looked at this topic, Keith, mm-hmm. I would have said absolutely not. But, but you know, I mean, really, you know, if Jesus is is God and man all in one, then of course he has to be smarter than Einstein because he's omniscient. Right. Okay. He knows. He knows it all. So, where does Einstein fit into this this equation? Okay, if if you look, you know, two thousand years later when Einstein came along, mm-hmm. Jesus revealed the various insights and in the theory of relativity to Einstein. Jesus couldn't do it twenty, you know, two thousand years ago when he was walking on the planet, because Einstein wasn't around, and the people around him, around Jesus, that is, weren't going to be able to accept those insights and those revelations from Jesus, and what were they going to do with it anyway? Right. You know, so in, in the fullness of time, Jesus was going to reveal all of that to somebody or someone, you know, somebody someplace, you know, whether it was in, a, in an academic institution or otherwise. Yeah, according to Christianity, Jesus is the one who gave Einstein his brain. That's correct. Yeah. So maybe this is a question then of why discipleship, true discipleship, is very rare, even amongst Christians, people who say, I am going to follow Jesus in all areas of my life, including my work. So, you know, if, if a Christian doesn't tend to think of Jesus as being the smartest man, then really, why should he follow him? Shouldn't he find somebody else? Maybe my, um, my mentor should be C.S. Lewis. Maybe my mentor should be Francis Schaeffer. You know, somebody really smart like that. Uh, maybe my mentor should be J.P. Moreland. Hmm. 
no, maybe it should be Jesus Christ. Well, you know, it, it almost dovetails right into this um, this quote that you gave by Packard at the beginning of the uh, the discussion, Keith, mm. in that uh, we have to live our lives and we have to learn to think somewhere. Our parents can bring us along so far, but right. then we have to really leave it up to Jesus to give us the rest of the the insights and the directions that we need to live moral and vibrant and intellectually sta- satisfying lives. Right. If we don't do that, if we're not asking him to lead us, it's almost like a dance. If somebody's not leading during the dance, you're going to have chaos on the floor and a lot of broken toes. Right. So, you know, the, I love the, the blindfold analogy that, that you gave us in Packard's quote, because we would be walking through life blindfolded, mm-hmm. stumbling and, and falling and hurting ourselves and, and so forth. And, and all then, too often we see the young people, especially even and even older adults, who are still blind in their, in their ignorance to, as to who Christ is and what he can actually bring to the table. Right. Or the and, dance floor. Right. And, and then when we do stumble, then we, then we turn to Jesus for him to bail us out or patch us up. Well, let's take a look at a Bible verse, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Uh, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So he says, learn from me. We are to learn from him. Mm. And, and you know, the, uh, the New Testament is replete with quotes from Jesus that we can take to heart and truly learn a great deal from him, you know, directly from the master's mouth, so to speak. Yep. So, um, so ask yourself this question then. Do, do I really respect, or let's ask our audience out there, do you really respect Jesus in your field? You know, if you're a computer programmer or a theologian or a business owner, a philosopher, a school teacher, another doctor, a chiropractor, a lawyer, do you really respect Jesus? Do you have him as, an, as a silent partner, or is he actively, actively engaged with you in your business and your day-to-day dealings with people? I don't care what your field is. Right. Is, you he take, your, is he your active partner? Yeah. Do you take him seriously? Mm. Right. Do you think that he has anything to say about this area? Right. If not, then we're going to tend to see him as, you know, okay, maybe he's holy, but is he competent? I mean, would Jesus make a competent physician? Oh, absolutely. Or for me, I'm in sales. Would Jesus be a competent salesman? If you're projecting the image of Christ and the integrity of Christ, certainly he's going to help you with your sales. Yeah. So there's a, you know, there are realms that people have taken the teachings of Jesus and applied it specifically to their areas and some realms where they haven't. There's a couple of examples that that Dallas Willard gives of two areas that Really, the experts in these fields have not paid attention to what Christ's teaching is. For one of them, he says, is uh, psychology, you know, that there's yet to be developed a truly Christian psychology that integrates a deep theory of soul, of human beings having a soul, uh, you know, and based upon the teachings of Jesus. Oh, Keith, you know what? You you can probably start teaching that course right now. Psychochristology 101. That'd be great. Oh, what a... I, 
I'll sign up. I'll be the first yeah, one. There you go. I'm in. You can see how important it would be. There, there's now there have been you know some work done by Christian uh, counselors and psychologists. Mm-hmm. Thinking of uh, Jay Adams, uh, wrote a book, Competent Counsel, excellent book, applying Christian principles uh, to psychology. But still, for the most part, the field itself has been unaffected. Another is economics. You know, this is something that Dallas Willard brings out. You know, the content of an economics course offered at a Christian school doesn't really differ from economics offered at a secular one. That shouldn't be. The Bible and Jesus have a lot to say about economics. I'm actually reading a very good economics book uh, now by uh, Jay Richards, a philosopher and uh, trained in in economics. Uh, The book is called God, Money, or I'm sorry, Greed, Money, and God. And it's really excellent about the application of biblical concepts to economics and why really the main economic theory that fits closest to the biblical model is capitalism, not a laissez-faire capitalism, not a Darwinian type of, uh, you know, beat up the comp- the uh, your competitors type of economics, but a ethical, uh, free market-based economics. So so there are people out there working on that, but we need a lot more. We need people who are disciples of Jesus Christ, um, you know, really advancing uh, in their particular field, whatever your field happens to be. And if you have been doing that and you'd like to call in, uh, give us a call, 609-398-1020, and tell us how you've been applying biblical principles to your particular field. You know, Keith, one of the problems that I see with this whole concept um, has to do with relevance. You know, is Jesus relative today to what we're doing in this modern day and age? Is he relevant? Yeah. yeah so people actually look back and say, well, you know, 2,000 years ago, yeah, the society was very agrarian. It, it was Hicksville all over the place. Uh, they were very primitive. Uh, and, and yeah, what he was teaching then was, was correct for its time, but not now. It's not relative. And see, and, and what they do, they, they just blow off Christ, mm-hmm. which... which is very disconcerting because he's just as relative today as he was 2,000 years ago. Absolutely. You know, and especially when you look at the intellect part, uh, I don't believe that anybody ever brought to the table as much insight and intellect to the, to the challenges and the, and the questions that were posed than Jesus did. So, yes, he is part of what we are today. He's just as relevant today as he was 2,000 years ago. And if we all took him seriously, we could actually change uh, the total, you know, the business environment, the the educational environment, the, the entire cultural environment that we all live and work in, if Christ was relevant in everybody's life. Absolutely. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And we are asking the question, was Jesus the smartest man who ever lived? Well, let's address then why is it that we tend not to see Jesus as relevant to our intellect. I mean, we're all three uh, parts. I like to describe people as being mind, will, and emotion. Mm. And we need to address each of those three parts. Yes, it's emotional. We need to have that love uh, in our relationship with God. We need to be doing good works. That's the will part, actually obeying Christ and helping the poor and the downtrodden, but we also need to address the mind, the intellect. Mm. And, you know, Keith, there are a lot of um, biblical um, quotes 
that have to do with the mind and and thinking and Mm -hmm. and intellect and so forth. And we're going to get into some of those uh, biblical quotes as this uh, show goes on. But uh, one of the questions that we're going to ask and try try to answer during this hour is we wonder why he did not just reveal much information Right. to us. Right. And we're going to be looking specifically at three areas. And yeah, this is one of the reasons why people tend not to think of him in an intellectual way, because he didn't give us a lot of data, right? He didn't give us a lot of data points that we could say. Yeah, bullet oh, points. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and one of the reasons you actually addressed earlier why he didn't is because, for one thing, the kinds of data that the creator of the universe could give you, the people he was talking to simply weren't ready for it yet. Right. Right? They weren't prepared to receive it. Well, why don't we look at uh, some of these things, Keith? Uh, and one of them has to do with uh, human beings being creators. Yes. Okay, we have to be creators in whatever it is that we're doing. We have to be miniature creators. Right. Whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah, so he doesn't want to do it for us. He doesn't want to just pump your head full of data. He wants you actually to figure things out and create things yourself. So Einstein was a creator of one of those things. Absolutely. Okay, one, you know, his, his theory of relativity, and then, of course, he worked on the atomic bomb and so forth. Uh, but He was created in the image of God, and he used that intellectual power to follow in his creator's footsteps and create information. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Keith, because I always uh, learned uh, early on that we use about 20 to 25 percent of our intellectual capability, and 75 percent of the brain is, is just not being used. That's and, what they say. Uh, I, I think that Einstein had a little bit more than most of us, but you, if you could imagine being 100 percent uh, intellectually competent and capable, it would approach that of what's, what's in God's mind, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, contrary to this... Uh conclusion that, you know, Jesus didn't really have anything relevant to the intellect. Actually, what we find uh, in examples like in the chapter Matthew 22, there's uh, instances where Jesus is uh, asked very, very difficult questions by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and yet he's able to handle them with an incredible intellectual ability. Um, there's uh, Luke chapter 2. That talks about him when he was 12 years old. Let's go ahead and, and read that. Mike, you want to read that Yeah, one? I've got that. Uh, this is Luke chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Uh, this is the NIV uh, version. Uh, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast, according to the custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day, and then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Yep. So, now think about it. This is several days' worth. You've got a 12-year-old boy. Now, if you have... Uh, we've all seen prodigies, right? Twelve-year-old who can do something really great or who's got, you know, uh, this incredible knowledge about something. But you know what? You don't keep the finest minds of the city busy 
for three days unless you're really something special. Yeah, this wasn't just a cute kid. Right. This kid was an amazing kid. And it says they were asking him questions. That's true. But then what does it say? They were amazed at his answers. Right. right? So, so he was asking them questions, and they were asking him questions also. So, uh, so the Bible gives us this idea that Jesus really was exceptionally brilliant, far beyond anything that we've seen ourselves with uh, you know, prodigies. Now, there are critics of course, and one of the critics, a guy by the name of Carl Jaspers, has criticized Jesus because of, you know, uh, being inconsistent, okay? Now, if he was truly inconsistent, if he uh, broke the law of non-contradiction, okay, and that's one of the foundational laws of logic, this would almost be uh, confirming evidence that Jesus was not God. Now, um, I think people should know that it's very, very difficult to speak for any period of time and not break some law of logic. I mean, we do it all the time. If you talk to anybody for several hours, I guarantee you that somewhere that person has made a, a violation of a law of uh, logic, maybe law of non-contradiction or... Um, law of the excluded middle, and, you know, on and on. I don't need to get into uh, those things. But I'm just saying that it's very easy to violate the laws of logic and not realize it. Now, there's a lot of what Jesus has said in the Bible. So here's an interesting question then. Do we ever find a contradiction of a law of logic in Scripture? Because if we do, that would be proof that God that Jesus was not God. Now, Carl, uh, Carl Jaspers claims that Jesus did make contradictions. So let's take a look. Matthew 5, 38 through 42, if you want to read that real quick. I've got that. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not risk, resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone uh, wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay. So uh, Jaspers points out here in this teaching that Jesus teaches about not resisting evil. Now, in the interest of time, let's not read the... uh, uh, some of these verses here, but we'll give it to people. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Here, Jesus talks about bringing a sword, right? And causing division and violence in the world. So Jaspers is saying that's a contradiction, okay? Well, obviously, it's not a true contradiction. It's two totally different areas. Jesus is saying that because of his teaching, because his teaching is so revolutionary, it's going to cause problems in the world. You know, it'll divide father and son, you know, brother and sister. They'll be divided because one will become a Christian, the other one won't. So that's what he's talking about, that he's going to be dividing people. He's not, that's not, has nothing to do with uh, resisting evil. Then he mentions Mark chapter 9, 38 through 41, where Jesus says, those not against him are with him. All right, well, Jaspers claims that's a contradiction of Matthew 12, 30. Those who are not with him are against him. 
Okay? See the apparent contradiction? If you're not against him, you're with him. But then he says, if you're not with him, you're against him. Now, if that was a true contradiction, aha, we've caught him. This would be proof that, God, that Jesus was not God. Uh, but in reality, what is it saying? If you're not against me, then you're with me. If you're not with me, you're against me. Basically, he's saying there's no middle ground. Yes, it's either one or the other. It's, yeah. uh, it's black and white. And that's not a contradiction. To say it's black and white is not a contradiction. That certain situations, things can be black and white. There can be no, that'd be the, in fact, the uh, second law of logic, the excluded middle. That's actually a principle of the excluded middle, that there is no middle ground, right? Something's either true or false. Okay, so let me give you uh, then a quote from uh, Jasper's that's in Douglas Gruthius' book on Jesus. And because I think it's interesting because at the end, he winds up having to compliment Jesus. Uh, I mean, it's a kind of a backhanded compliment, but still see what you think of this. He says, Jesus teaches by proclaiming the glad tidings, Socrates by compelling men to think, Jesus demands faith, Socrates an exchange of thought, Jesus speaks with direct earnestness, Socrates indirectly, even by irony, Jesus knows the kingdom of heaven and eternal life, Socrates has no definite knowledge of these matters and leaves the question open, but neither will let men rest. Jesus proclaims the only way. Socrates leaves man free and keeps reminding him of his responsibility rooted in freedom. Both raise supreme claims. Jesus confers salvation. Socrates provokes men to look for it. You know, I've heard the criticism. I remember a professor of uh, New Testament uh, many, many years ago when I was actually a uh, new Christian, complained that uh, Jesus didn't die well. He thought that if you wanted to, to see how a man ought to die, you should look at the way Socrates died when he drank hemlock. But someone else later, I, found, I came across a quote where somebody says, if Socrates died like a man, Jesus died like a god. And uh, that's really the difference between Socrates and Jesus, even in their intellectual thinking. Um, you know, Jaspers tries to find these contradictions, and they're really not there. Well, let's look at some ways in which Jesus used his great intellect to, for one thing, escaping the horns of a dilemma. Now, what are the horns of a dilemma? A dilemma is when you are stuck between two things, and you have to uh, make a choice, and neither one of them is a good choice. All right. So these are the kinds of tricks and traps that the Sadducees and Pharisees were trying to set for Jesus. So we have one in Matthew 22, 15 through 22. And just to paraphrase, Keith, in the interest yeah. of time, this is where uh, they try to trap Jesus. And they say to him, a teacher, is it correct for us to be paying taxes to Caesar? And what does he do? He says, show me that coin. Show me the denarius. Whose picture's on it? Whose inscription is on it? Right. And of course, it was Caesar. Yeah. And he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Yes. Now, I'm paraphrasing. Yes, but that's exactly right. So they gave to him what they thought was this contradiction. You're either going to give money to Caesar or you're going to give money to um, God. the church. Yeah, yes. to God. And... Jesus sees 
Jesus points out what they've overlooked. So that they miss the fact that some things belong to God and some things belong to government, to the state. So a uh, very uh, you know, intellectual way of slicing through this problem that they had, that they gave them. Now, here's another one that they give them in uh, Matthew 22, verses, the very, very next verses, 23 through 28, where um, he's got another choice between A or B. Now, it can't be both, and it can't be neither. So what are the choices there? Well, just to paraphrase again, mm-hmm. Keith, they, they talk about a brother who has seven other brothers. The brother marries, he dies, and therefore under, under Hebrew custom, the second brother was supposed to marry the widow. Mm-hmm. But he dies also, and then the third brother has to marry her on down the line where right. all seven brothers are dead. Now, on the day of the resurrection, of course, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They're the guys that are trying to trap Jesus. Right. They say, teacher, what will happen on the day of the resurrection? Will he have seven wives in heaven? Right. And what does Jesus say? Well, the question is, what could he have said? I mean, if you're, when you're posed with this kind of a dilemma, either A or B, what do, what do I say now? Well, uh, let's look at what some, some uh, historical figures have said or politicians or religious leaders have said. Well, you can dodge the question. Okay. Did Jesus dodge the question? No, he didn't dodge the question. All right. Did he, um, he could have threatened them for even asking such a question, right? Or he could have just asserted the contradiction and said, well, you know what? That's just the way things are. You know, um, that, you know, we'll find out when we, we get up in heaven. There, there's this contradiction. We'll just find out when we get in heaven. That's the way things are. But no, he gave an incredibly astute answer. He gave a third way. He had information that they didn't have, which was that in heaven, there isn't any kind of marrying. There's no sexual reproduction amongst uh, angels, uh, amongst uh, people in heaven. So, therefore, dilemma solved. So, um, so those are just an, two examples of escaping uh, dilemmas. There's also all kinds of uh, ways that Jesus uses his incredible intellect. He uses appeals to evidence uh, he reasons with his opponents. He doesn't just give empty claims or threats or attacking his opponents. He reasons with them. Uh, but Keith, and it, can, I, can I just make a comment on that last answer yeah, sure. about marriage in heaven? He really slams the Sadducees with the final comment. He says to them that the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob is not the God of the dead but of the living. Right. So he's basically telling them they're walking dead men. Well, they thought that there was no afterlife. So he actually gave a dilemma to them. How is it you cannot believe in, a, in an afterlife when it says that I am the God of Isaac, which means that, mm-hmm. uh, that Isaac uh, and Jacob were still alive. Right. They were living in the afterlife. Well, I'll give you a couple more verses that, that give examples of Jesus' incredible intellect. John 7, 21 through 24. This is Jesus using the logical argument called a fortiori. And this is where you, you claim something based on the strength of someone else's argument. So he uses their own arguments against them by saying, by using an a fortiori, uh, well, let's try and pronounce this again, a fortiori. 
argument. Okay, so that's in John. We'll, we'll have to save that for later. Matthew 11, 4 through 6, Jesus gives a modus ponens. It's a very classical, logical argument. If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. This is a tremendous example of Jesus using a very rational, logical argument. And then Matthew 22, 41 through 46, he uses the reductio ad absurdum argument, where it just goes to absurdity to show that their viewpoint was wrong. So not only did he not make any mistakes in any of the things that he said, but he actually showed an incredible intellect on par with the greatest minds in philosophy, uh, using very piercing uh, techniques techniques mm-hmm. to um, argue his point. The master of logic. Mm-hmm. So... How we've got a couple minutes left. Uh, let's uh, let's address then the question: How do we relate uh, the intellect of Jesus into our fields? How do we put that into practice? Well, I personally do. Mm-hmm. You know, I I offer prayer to those who have no other alternative or who uh, request prayer. You know, I have patients in my practice who are on their third um, set of chemotherapy that's really investigational. Mm -hmm. And they're dying, and they know it. So you do what? you? And I will actively embrace the husband's hand and the wife's hand. doesn't matter which one of them has the cancer, but they know that they're terminal. And I'll say, I'm going to pray for you. Mm -hmm. And I will do that. So you directly use Jesus as your mentor and follow what what you think he would do in that particular situation. And, and I use him as the ultimate healer. Yes. And those are the kinds of things that we need to do in our jobs, no matter what it is, applying the morals that he taught us and the love for God and for our neighbor. And then we're going to see some real changes in the economy, in uh so many different careers. Well, you have been listening to Evidence for Faith. I am Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And please join us again next week, every Sunday at 4 p.m. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.